Well, once again, a very uh, good morning to you. If I didn't get a chance to say good morning to you before, welcome. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nathaniel. I get to be pastor here. And uh, if you're visiting us with us this morning, especially if this is the first time, please take a time at some point to, to let me and the others know that, we're, that you're here. That way we can pray for you. Uh, whether you want to sign that little red register in the pews or there's a little white card you could drop into the offering plate or just uh, drop a note online for us uh, on our website. You can do any of those. Let us know you're here and that way we can, we can pray for you and thank you for joining us. This morning we'll take a look at Luke chapter 7 so we can see and receive from Jesus the gift of faith. Let's begin uh, with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us this wonderful morning that we might not only uh, celebrate the gift of faith, but also know the gift of freedom that you have given us here in America, the gift of freedom that has been won through many lives given on our behalf, uh, and the gift of freedom that was given especially because your son Jesus Christ gave his life for us. We pray this uh, Independence Weekend as we celebrate that freedom, that we might remember, uh, especially the, the sacrifice of your son for us, for our and our salvation, and we can share that with many far and wide. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I would say that in my life, I've been pretty fortunate, pretty blessed to see a lot of uh, cool places. And I brought a couple of them here, a lot of amazing places. I bet you know this place, Niagara Falls, right? Uh, I got to take my family to to Niagara Falls uh, for vacation this last weekend. Uh, you know, Niagara Falls is pretty close. It's only about six hours if you cut through Canada. So you just cut right through and, and you're there. Uh, wonderful place, amazing sight, right? Uh, and, and I've been to a lot of other amazing places in my life. Probably a, a number of you recognize this, Great Wall of, of China, another phenomenal sight. Look at that, Look at that wall. So you see how far that stretches up the hill on the backside there? That one way back there, that's just crazy, isn't it? Can you imagine? All the way across China, an amazing sight. And in my life, I've been to a lot of other uh, amazing, amazing places, um, amazing sights, uh, seeing the Colosseum in Rome and you know, where Paul walked in Corinth and, and all over the place, lots of places. I consider myself very fortunate. And yet I would say that after seeing all of these places, I don't think I'm any more of an amazing person. Um, maybe you think when you, when you look at me, you know, oh, that's pretty amazing. Uh, he's pretty amazing for doing all that. No, you probably don't, right? Uh, I do know a few play people who I would say, at least through some of the places that they have seen in life, they're pretty amazing people. There's this one gentleman I know who was a, a professor, an educator in Kiev, I think it was, for about 15 years and did a lot of other things around the world. And he's just seen some awesome places. And every time I see him, even if I'm at a conference with a thousand other people, I have to talk to him because I love to hear his stories. He's an amazing guy for all of the things that he has done and seen. So what about you? What kind of amazing places have you seen? And more importantly, have they made you more amazing? Pick, pick one amazing place that you've seen in your life that you would stick in that blank and then think to yourself, as it made you as a person, maybe a more amazing person. I suspect a lot of us would say, no, the sights we have seen don't make us more amazing. And yet we hear from Jesus this morning 
of a site. Jesus shows us a site. We get to see this amazing scene develop before our very eyes, and it makes the people in it more amazing. Uh, one person in particular comes out of the whole scene, and Jesus himself is amazed at him. Wouldn't you like to be a person that Jesus is amazed at? Wouldn't that be cool if you could be somebody that Jesus himself is amazed at? That's what Jesus invites you and I uh, to be this morning. That person is a, a centurion. He is a centurion. He's the main character really in the uh, text today. And so let's take a little bit of a, a look at this centurion. Now, do you know a centurion it means that he is over a hundred people? give or take a few. He's over 100. About 80 of them would have been soldiers. The other 20 would have been servants of different kinds. This centurion, uh, centurions were the professional soldiers of the Roman army. Whether or not they were Romans, they were always the, the professional soldiers. They, just like our army, they had enlisted men uh, who served you know, four years, give or take, depending on how long their, their term of deployment was. And they had professional, lifelong men uh, like centurions. They would serve for 20, 25 plus years. My brother-in-law is, you know, that lifer in the army. That's uh, what this guy was, the professional. You, know, you didn't get to be a centurion because you were just an average soldier. Roman soldiers were known to be particularly powerful, uh, particularly brutal. There's stories told about you know, the Roman legions, um, especially in the civil wars. They would, they would meet up one day and, and shake hands and drink beer together, and the next day they'd turn around and slaughter each other uh, because that was how much pride they took in victory and in their country winning. Um, they, they were not your average, you know, nice guy soldier. On top of it, this centurion, not only was he uh, in charge of 100 men and a professional soldier and uh, a fierce one at that, he was also very likely not a Roman. Uh, we know from historical records that there were no Roman soldier garrisons stationed in Galilee at this time. Uh, so it's possible that the historical records are just missing one, but otherwise what we, we suspect often happened is the Romans, along with having their own units of soldiers, would also hire on outsiders to form auxiliary forces. They would take uh, people from Greece and Turkey and Egypt and form auxiliary forces and they would station them in the areas that they didn't like to serve. And, and Galilee was one of those. Nobody wanted to be a soldier in Galilee. It was, it was the powder keg. I mean, it was like being stationed in Afghanistan. Uh, it was not a, a pleasant place to serve. And so this centurion, not only was he in charge of 100 men, a professional, an, an excellent soldier, top-notch, he was probably not a native. And that matters then as we, we get on to this other issues, because he has servants. He has servants, so the servants maybe, uh, well, very likely would be locals. Uh, they wouldn't haul their servants around, they'd just take new servants when they got there. 
Uh, and so what we have here is a, a person who's an outsider already who is caring deeply for a local individual. You know, can you imagine going to, to China and taking for yourself servants and then caring for them like your own people? You know, this man, he has 20, 25, maybe more servants, and they're, they're hired on. You know, it would have been very easy, wouldn't it have, they weren't his people, to just say, yeah, I don't care. Let him go, right? If he dies, he dies. I mean, what's that to me? He's not my person, and I got a lot more where they came from. But see, this man is an excellent man. The Jewish leaders say about him that he, he loves the nation. You know, when I was overseas, when I was in China for a couple years, okay, I liked China. It was a nice country. There were things about it that were good. And I told my friends that, especially my Chinese friends. But they never would have said about me that I loved the nation. You know, they knew that I was an American. They knew that I, I preferred my country. They never would have said that I loved the nation. And yet this man, for whatever reason, he has such honesty, such integrity, that they realize he even loves their nation, right? He loves the Israelites. And he proves it. He proves it when he, he builds the synagogue. You know, we have some very generous people here, people who have, have given immensely to building this church uh, and to being part of the ministry here. Some of you are also very generous in the city, right? Generous to the, the local endeavors. But I don't see anybody's name over the library. You know, it, it doesn't say at the library, the Eck Family Library. Uh, that would be a, a pretty famous thing. But this guy, right, he built the local church. Wow, huh? This is a man. This is a man who has excelled at everything he has done in life. And this is a man who has the character to back it up. I think a lot of us would love to be amazing like this guy, wouldn't we? We would love to have this man's excellence at everything he does. We would love to have this man's character uh, to go with it. And still, right, this man cares for his servant. cares deeply for his servant. He loves that servant more than, more than probably even makes sense. He sees this brokenness. He sees this emptiness that needs to be fulfilled. He sees this hurting, this lost, and, and he wants to fill it. He wants to fix it. He wants to do something about it. What a guy, right? He sees the, the lostness in life, and he doesn't overlook it. And, and that, to me, that really teaches us something, that amazing, you know, if you're going to be amazing in life, it has to begin with, with broken. You have to be able to see what is broken. It makes me think about um, one of the classic illustrations for faith. And a man actually told me he had a real-life uh, story that worked exactly with it, a real-life experience, and thought, I thought I'd add this in. So he, he and his friends, 16 years old, learned how to rock climb. And then they got bored with rock climbing, and so they learned how to rappel. But they just learned from a book. Um, they went rappelling one day, right? And, and I don't any of you ever rappel? 
little bit. Okay, so you know how to repel, right? You, you get all hooked up into the harness, right? And he's there and he says, okay, so now what do we do? What do you do? Yeah, first thing, usually if you're a starter, you lean, right? You just lean into the rope and you say, okay, we're going to let the rope catch you. And he, and he, he said, that doesn't make any sense. That's the most counterintuitive thing ever. It, you know, it's terrifying. Right? So he's standing there on the edge and, and he says, okay, and he just leans, right? And in that second before the rope catches him as he leans, uh, his whole life flashes before his eyes. You know, he's absolutely frightened of falling. But then the rope catches him and he's le- leaning there perpendicular to the rock and he says, oh, this is kind of nice. So then what do you, you know, then, okay, now jump, right? First jump, two inches. That's all he could be terrified to do. But then, you know, bigger jumps, a foot, two feet, five feet, 10 feet. Um, and, and he comes down the rock face, which was basically vertical until he, he reaches, there's a, a cut in a big, you know, 10 feet, 15 feet cut in where you have to, you have to jump. And, and, you know, it's not a jump into blind faith. A lot of people will make fun of faith or accuse something of faith and say, it's totally blind. And no, it, faith is not blind. It's, you know, he knew that the rope worked. The rope had held him that far, but still there's a huge risk. There's a big difference between jumping five feet and having the wall right there and jumping 15 feet and saying, oh, I hope that you know, I hit the rock and the rope still holds. Uh, and, and, and he did it. But he had to face that, that fact that he couldn't fix this one on his own. It was, it was all about trusting the rope to hold him as he, he swung down there. He had to face the brokenness and the emptiness, the thing that he couldn't do. That was the only way to move on. Right? Amazing. It, it begins with broken in life. Um, And I love to say that faith is as easy as that. That we start, we face the brokenness, we face the lostness, we face the emptiness in ourselves, and we can go on right from there to being filled with faith. But something else happened to this guy when he was repelling that was also really instructive. He was there with his best friends, and his best friend, when he, it was his turn next, he got up, he got all strapped in the harness. Turns out he's terrified of heights. He spent 15 minutes standing there on the edge, trembling in fear. And, and his friend is 75 feet down the mountain looking up at him, and he can see him from 75 feet away trembling. That's how scared this guy was uh, of going off that cliff. Um, eventually, the guy, he, he can't do it. He can't repel. And so what he, he ends up doing, he takes the first big step and he just steps down and he puts his toe on and he, instead of climbing up the mountain, he just climbs down the mountain. One step at a time, he, rather than repelling, he, he climbs down. What do you think he does though when he gets to the cut-in? And he gets to the, the, the cut right there where he has to jump. You, you can't climb that unless you're, I mean, an insane professional climber. There's nobody who can hang upside down from a rock face like that. Hardly anybody can. Uh, you have to either face your own need to trust that rope, your own brokenness, your lostness, and your emptiness, or you give up. And that's what he did. He just turned around and went right back up the, up the rock face, 25 feet back up to the top. How many people don't do that when it comes to faith? 
we see in this lesson here, there's two different excuses offered for why people don't need to believe. And you and I know that there's a myriad of reasons that people will give in life for why we shouldn't believe. But I think we can bring them all down to the two examples that we get in this lesson. First, you hear from the, uh, the Jewish leaders. Right? The Jewish leaders say to Jesus, hey, you know, this man's good. This man's a good guy. He's done good things. He loves our neighbors. He's got some, he loves our nation, right? He's got some appropriate nationalistic pride. He's, he's got, uh, he also, he cares for the people. He built the synagogue, so he's got some good religious zeal, some good religious fervor. And, and Jesus, you should just help him because he's a good guy. Now, maybe it's true that Jesus liked to have some some context for a reason to help this person. But how many of us don't say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good person. Okay. I'm a pretty good guy, you know. I, I got my things together. I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I think about all of the, uh, a person I, I talked to just a few months ago, kind of distantly connected to a church. How's things going in life? You know, I'm, I'm, pretty good. I got, I got things together. That's why I don't need to come to church that often. That's why I don't do many you know, Christian things. I don't need to, to read my Bible. I got these things together. Isn't that an excuse? It's an excuse that keeps us from having to take the risk to trust Jesus. It's an excuse that keeps us from having to face the brokenness and the lostness and the emptiness that would, that would mean we need to trust someone else. And, you know, and there's, there's another excuse in this lesson, too. When the, when the friends of the centurion come to Jesus, they bring the centurion's message, don't they? they? They say to Jesus, well, I don't even deserve to have you come underneath my roof. Right? I don't deserve to have you come and, and help me. And I know that the centurion goes on. But how many of us don't we feel like we don't deserve help? Have you ever said, right, I'm such a mess. I mean, this, this, I would get struck with, with fire if I walked into the church. I'd die if I walked into that place. I mean, how could God let me walk into a church? I'm, I'm such a disaster. And I, I understand that we all feel at times that we are not good enough. But you know what that is? That's an excuse, too. It's an excuse to face, again, our own brokenness and our lostness and the need that we need to get fixed by Jesus. And the centurion, he gets it. The centurion, you heard what he said in verses 6, 7, and 8. He said, I don't deserve it. I'm more lost than you could possibly imagine. I am such a bad guy. How could you possibly come to my house, Jesus? But he also says, just say the word. You have the power, Jesus, and, and I know that you want to work good for me. The centurion gets what is faith. Faith is both, I'm more lost than I imagined. Right? I repent. I turn away from my sin in dust and ashes, but I also, I trust you, Jesus. And that's 
what makes amazing. Right? Amazing stops all of the excuses and then it turns to Jesus. You know, this is the only time in the whole Bible where Jesus says somebody like you and me is amazing. It's the only time. In the rest of the Bible, it's Jesus who gets to be amazing. When Jesus calms the storm, the disciples say, whoa, he's so amazing. And when Jesus uh, stands before Pontius Pilate and he's silent, he doesn't say a word as he stands trial. Pilate says, well, that's amazing. And when Peter runs to the empty tomb on Easter morning and it's empty, he says, whoa, that's amazing. And when the disciples, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they see, they, they see Jesus leave them, just up and disappear. They say, whoa, that's amazing. Jesus gets to be the one who is amazing. And yet, what does he do here? He says, you, you centurion, you're amazing. Can you see what's happening? When you look to Jesus, you become amazing. When you're amazed by the one who is amazing, then, then you get to be amazing. When you marvel at him, then, then you become marvelous in his eyes. When you love that amazing sight, you're the most amazing thing in the world to him. Now that, that's amazing, right? And that's why we can say that amazing comes from the one who is a broken. You know what this can look like in, in your life, my life? It's a pretty amazing thing. One of the stories I think that illustrates this the best is a man named William Moore. William Moore. Maybe you know the story of William Moore. He was famous uh, about 10-ish years ago. And I'll, I'll tell it to us real quickly. So William Moore comes back from Germany. He was deployed as a soldier in Germany in 1974. And he gets back and he finds that he's basically broke. He's penniless and, uh, and he's hungry. His wife has, has left him and uh, abandoned her, their three-year-old son. He's hungry. Uh, he finds out that there's a man in town, Frederick Stapleton, who keeps a fair amount of money in his house. And he doesn't know what to do, and so he decides to break into Stapleton's house and steal the money. Uh, he gets in the, in the house. A gun goes off. Um, we're still confused, you know, 40 years later if it was intentional or accidental, but a gun went off. And then Stapleton, or uh, Moore, didn't know what to do, and so he pulled out his pistol and he shot and then he stole $6,000 and he fled from the scene. Supposedly there had been like $30,000 in the house. He didn't get the 30, he just took six and he ran. The next day the sheriff shows up at Moore's house. They arrest him. It turns out that Stapleton died. Uh, he sh that Moore shot Stapleton fatally and he died. He pleads guilty and he is sentenced to death. He stays in prison. Not Weeks after he gets into prison, two men come to visit him, and they, they basically evangelize him. They share the gospel with him. Uh, and they tell him, they say, Moore says this, Nobody had ever told me that Jesus loves me, and he died for me. It was a love I could feel. It was a love I wanted. It was a love I needed. And on that day, Moore said yes to Christ's gift of forgiveness and eternal life, uh, and he was baptized in a small tub, in a, a pool in the the prison. After that, Moore became something of the prison evangelist. He held Bible studies, he held prayer meetings, he, he led people to Christ. He also became something of a counselor. He became reconciled to the family that uh, he shot, uh, Stapleton's family. And he was known as the peacemaker, and his block, his cell block in that, um, in that jail 
was the most peaceful, the quietest, and the most well-behaved out of the entire jail. And yet, for all of the good that he was doing, and he was definitely doing good, he was still sentenced to death. He was, he was going to be executed. Uh, it turned out, though, that people started noticing this transformation that was taking place in Moore. Uh, Mother Teresa intervened. A fellow inmate uh, started writing letters after he got out to the, the Board of Paroles. Um, even, it says, it was interesting, even the family got involved, the family that he had, he had been, uh, had killed. And then an Atlanta Law Journal called him a saintly figure. Right? So there's everybody is intervening on his behalf. And finally, just hours before his execution is going to take place, the Georgia Board of, of Parole intervened and stayed the execution in 1991. A couple of years later, he was interviewed and he was asked about the transformation. You know, why, why the change? Why the change? Somebody said, it was, a, it was the prison rehabilitation system, wasn't it? And he laughed and he said, no. Was it a self-help program or having a positive mental attitude? <laughs> Again, no. Prozac? Other medication? Meditation? No. He said, then what was responsible for this transformation? Plain and simple, it was Jesus Christ. He changed me in ways I could never have changed on my own. He gave me a reason to live. He helped me do the right thing. He gave me a heart for others. He saved my soul. That, my friends, is the power of faith to make us amazing. Faith makes amazing people. Let me pray for your faith. Dear Jesus, we need to face the brokenness, the hurt, the pain in our lives, because that's the way to amazing. You take people who, who are dealing with huge problems and you make them amazing. We pray that through this gift of faith that you would make us amazing in your sight, the sight that really matters. Forgive us for our excuses, for, for turning away from you, for not having that faith, uh, and, and make us amazing in your sight. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.